Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by Sukup Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Most nonprofit organizations that are recognized by the Internal Revenue Service qualify for tax-exempt status with the Office of Tax and Revenue. Now, according to the IRS, to be tax-exempt, an organization must be organized and operated exclusively for exempt purposes, and none of its earnings may inure to any private shareholder or individual. I read that directly, so if you want to look up the word in your, help yourself. (laughs) Seems easy enough, but there are some pitfalls that you should be aware of. Maybe there's something that you're doing right now that could possibly jeopardize your status, and we don't want that to happen. So we've brought in an expert to discuss your tax-exempt status, how to get it, and most importantly, how to protect it. Amy Chapman is our guest today. She's a principal with Clifton Larson Allen. She has more than 23 years of experience providing tax and consulting services to clients of varying sizes with a primary focus on nonprofit entities, which is why we brought her here today. Amy has been an invited speaker for many conferences around the country. She is a graduate of the University of Central Florida, which is where we find her today in beautiful, sunny Orlando. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today on Impactability. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. So, Amy, the most common tax-exempt status is 501c3. We hear that combination of numbers and letters all the time, but what does it actually mean? Well, in general, it means you have been approved by the IRS to be tax-exempt, which means you are exempt from paying federal income tax. What is 501c3? What, where did that come from? Oh, it's it's just Internal Revenue Code section. Everything related to nonprofits or tax exempt is not all 501c3. You'll hear 509a1, 509a2. This whole code section is just IRS code speak for the nonprofit area. Is there a difference between tax exempt and 501c3? No, I think they're used rather interchangeably. But it can be still tricky in some respects because nonprofits and private foundations can both be 501c3s. And you can see the name foundation and be a 501c3 public charity, and you could be a 501c3 private foundation, which means you file a 990PF instead of a Form 990. The foundations pay a, a, a tax. But just because you see the word foundation in a name of a nonprofit, they could be 501c3, um, but you may not know if they are technically a public charity. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Are all nonprofit organizations tax exempt? I mean, do all charities qualify for tax exempt status? Probably yes, but I'm sure in some cases, no. Some of them could have subsidiaries or organized as an LLC. They might have a for-profit or not-for-profit type partnership. So in general, I would say yes, but I, I know there's cases where it is not yes. Okay. So does a nonprofit have to file for tax-exempt status? Yes. 
So if you want to be a nonprofit or be considered tax exempt, you do need to make an application with the IRS. And the most common application is a form 1023. So we now have a full 1023 or a 1023-EZ, and these are all done electronically now. Uh, with the IRS and it's extensive and you have to have a lot of supporting documents. You need to have everything just right, but the IRS does a really good job of giving you a checklist and telling you exactly what you need to do. So I've seen several 1023s get rejected because people think they can do it on their own instead of hiring a, a CPA or an attorney who works in tax with tax exempt entities. And they're missing a particular article and the article's of incorporation about their dissolution and they will just reject it. So I talked to a potential client before Christmas in Tampa and they tried to go it alone and messed it up and the IRS rejected them. And so now they were making a whole new uh, application and starting over. I was just talking to uh, someone the other day, they wanna launch a nonprofit, they wanna start a nonprofit. And the discussion centered around the difference between a 501c3 and a 501c6, where I think this person, they might end up going in that direction. Can you explain the difference to our listeners? Yes, the, the C6 is more around an association or a business association or organization of such like a chamber of commerce or um things like that. So we have a lot of clients out of DC and there's tons of associations up there, right? I mean, anything you, anything you can think of, right? There's an association for, and those are organized as 501c6s because it's really not operating for the benefit of the public, right? But they're sharing information among members, they're doing conferences and, and content maybe for a particular group. And so they have membership dues and probably publications and things. So like maybe like American Medical Association, stuff like that. And the big difference too, that they don't pay tax right? Just like a 501c3, they file a 990 and they're not subject to income tax, but they are allowed to engage in political campaign activity where a 501c3 is not. So they can participate in lobbying, things like that, where a C3 cannot? Yes, lobbying and political. So um, C3s can have some lobbying and it can be small, but yeah, lobbying and, and supporting a political candidate are not the same thing. When you make a, a payment or for your membership dues to a C6, it's not tax deductible. It's typically um, a membership fee. It's not, it's not going to be treated the same as me donating to Goodwill. And a good way people can learn that or figure that out. So say for their business or personal income taxes, if you go to irs.gov under charities and nonprofit they have a select, what they call a select check. And you can type in the name of the entity or EIN and you can learn very quickly. It has like little codes that tells you if it's a PF, is it a private operating foundation? Is it a PC? Is it a public charity? Uh, is it a supporting org? Things like that to know from a tax standpoint how it can be treated. Mm -hmm. So if I want to start a nonprofit, 
what is the best way for me to find out what my tax exemption status would be? Because we've talked about C3, C6. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned a flurry of different numbers and letters all combined together. So I'm wondering, what's the best way to find out which my nonprofit would qualify as? I think a couple of ways to do that. The, the IRS website I just mentioned, irs.gov, uh, charities and nonprofits is the section at the top of the, the screen on the webpage. That's a great place to start tons and tons of material information to help you figure out what you might be. The other way is to look out there to see what other organizations might be like what you want to do. And you can look because five public charities, their 990s are public information. So you can pull those from the IRS website or Candid, which was called GuideStar. You should be able to find, and you can even contact the organization and ask for a copy and they're supposed to give it to you. Mm -hmm. So that's a really great way I tell people who are thinking of starting a nonprofit to go and see what else another organization is doing that's similar. What is their... 990 say, how, how are they doing? What are they doing? What are they programming? And did they qualify that sort of thing to start getting an idea of what they would do? The other thing to consider when you go down this road, and you said this right at the beginning, Joe, is private inurement or benefiting, right? You don't set up a 501c3 public charity to benefit yourself or a small group of people. That's one of the quickest ways to lose your tax exempt status. And you can have reasonable compensation, all right, from a nonprofit. So, uh, so many people think that you're not going to get a good salary or you're not supposed to get a good salary because all the money needs to be going to program. But just like nonprofits and for profits, they need and want to hire quality people and want to retain them. So, compensation is an issue. But you can't operate for the benefit of yourself. If you're planning to take a bunch of money out and somehow funnel it to you, then guess what? You probably shouldn't be setting up a 501c3. You probably want to do a for-profit entity where you're able to take dividends, things like that, where a 501c3 does not operate like that. You have a board. You have a fiduciary responsibility. You're operating for the benefit of the public, not for a small few. So that, that can be a big differentiator. And Joe, as you know, because you've been around a while in this industry, it's not for the lighthearted. There's a lot of compliance that goes into maintaining a 501c3, a lot of record keeping, a lot of transparency. Yeah, I mean, it, you do a lot to maintain that tax exempt status and not pay income tax. Our guest today is Amy Chapman, and I don't know about you, but I am writing down some serious notes today. We are talking about your nonprofit's tax-exempt status. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the ways that your nonprofit could lose your tax-exempt status. We touched on that a little bit. We're going to dig into that a little bit more and how you can keep that from happening. I know that's a scary thought, but we're going to address that in just a moment. You are listening to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I am Joe Turner, and we will be right back. Major gifts are the ultimate source of funding for nonprofits. They can help fulfill your mission and achieve your vision. Having a strong major gifts program should be a priority, but where do you begin? The best place to start is with Sukup Strategic Solutions. We create transformational change by working collaboratively to raise funds. 
Our fundraising consultants will assess your organization's fundraising capacity and develop a plan that serves as a blueprint for your fundraising success. Visit our website today at SukupStrategicSolutions.com and schedule a free consultation today. That's S-O-U-K-U-P, SukupStrategicSolutions.com. When it comes to major gifts, the effort you put in can make all the difference, and Sukup Strategic Solutions can help. Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. We're speaking with our guest, Amy Chapman, about the tax exempt status at nonprofits and how to be sure you're following all of the rules. And as just as a reminder, another edition of Coach's Corner is coming up in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. So, Amy, you've worked with a lot of nonprofits during the course of your career, and I'd like you to share with us an experience when you helped a nonprofit that was close to losing their tax-exempt status? Unfortunately, I can think of two situations where this has happened. One is a more recent client, and they had started a a sports association or sports group for, for kids, and I think it's soccer, and they had not had everything in order. The the person who set up the organization moved. They didn't get IRS notices. And due to COVID and the lack of staffing, the nonprofit sector or any sector in the IRS is way, way behind. So even though they filed one of the years of the returns, something was incomplete. They didn't, you know, get the correspondence. Then they filed again, but they filed in paper. The IRS never processed it. So they revoked their status. So I've been working and coaching with them to get the status back. We've made a uh, another application. And the unfortunate situation is they still did what they needed to do to maintain their status. Yet because of all the troubles and issues the IRS is having with getting through everything, they just revoked it. But I said, we're not going to get through to people. It's going to take a long time to write letters. And so we've just started the, the process again. And I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll get it and keep it and maintain it. But that's the number one way to lose your status. So you need to make sure you've got your address correct. Anytime you change address or change people in the accounting department, that notices are, are getting addressed quickly. And then making sure extensions are, are filed timely. And the IRS sends a letter saying, hey, we've got your extension. We've accepted. And you get six months to uh, file from there. Wow. That is, that's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm glad you're staying on top of it. And I'm sure your client is too. How does a nonprofit then protect their tax exempt status? I mean, besides making sure they do their taxes, are there some other tips that you can offer us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a couple we've already talked about is the private and benefit and inurement. So if you do something that even, even if you were to take home office furniture, right? The executive director took office furniture home. That could be considered an excess benefit. And it may not raise to the level of jeopardizing your exempt status, but there could be a penalty and uh, a tax associated with that type of activity. So that's why it's important to have contracts. You have an audit committee, you have maybe a compensation committee and things are being approved. There's compensation studies. So Really, private inurement can be an issue, but I have not ever seen a tax-exempt organization lose their status over, over that. 
The other one to watch out for is going down the road of political activity when you are not eligible for doing something like that. I see numerous nonprofits where I have a 501c6 and they're able to do that, but then they have a 501c3 right next to it. And that's the foundation. That's the nonprofit that can take charitable donations and they can support other nonprofits and things like that. And that, but that organization isn't going to do any of the political. The other factor, which I haven't seen yet, but, but could be the situation is you can have a for-profit activity inside a nonprofit and pay tax. So that filing is a form 990T. That would be the equivalent of 1120, a C-Corp filing. So if you have activity that is not in line with your exempt purpose, it's something else you're doing and you're generating income and you're generating a profit, you'll pay tax and the income tax rate is 21%. And you could be filing in, in other states depending on the activity or what's triggering that unrelated business income or UBI, we call it. Mm -hmm. So if you start to spend too much time and too much resources on your for-profit activities, then that could push you down the road to IRS saying, wait a minute, you're not a nonprofit anymore and you could jeopardize your exempt status. Obviously you work uh, for a CPA firm yourself. For our nonprofits, especially the the startup ones, the the younger ones in in our audience, those thinking about starting nonprofits, what should they be looking for in a good CPA? Definitely a CPA who actually works with nonprofits on a regular basis. Because again, just like working with an attorney who doesn't, you know, they're you know, all the time, you're like, Oh, well, I have a friend who, you know, does family law. And you know, they do litigation, but yeah, they help me set up the articles and things like that. And that happens a lot. Because in the nonprofit world, the number one thing I think that feeds the success is volunteers. That the value that volunteers bring to nonprofits is huge. We, we, we should all be thinking our volunteers more and more, and especially when a nonprofit is starting, it's people who know the founder, they care about what they want to do. They want to support, you know, that person, they get behind the, the mission and they say, oh, well, you so-and-so, or they try to go it along. It, it makes sense to get the right people who actually work in that particular area of nonprofit and exempt. That is absolutely fantastic advice. That's probably one of the first things that a nonprofit or a soon-to-be nonprofit should do is find just that right fit in a CPA and, as you say, that specializes in working with nonprofits. Right. And I, I have a couple of coworkers who don't specialize in nonprofit like I do, but I work down the hall from them. So uh, during the Christmas holiday, a coworker said, hey, one of my clients is thinking of starting a nonprofit, but they don't know all the issues and what does it mean and how do you do it and how do you keep it? And I said, well, let's get on a call. Let, let's set up a call and talk through what they're thinking. One, what they want to do, the activity, what it actually qualifies as a 501c3. Do you have other people involved that would want to be on the board and who the officers would be? Are you truly doing this for the benefit of the public? And what's the mission? And, and not benefiting yourself or a small group of uh, people. Again, Amy, thank you so much for your time and expertise today on impactability. This has been a really, really helpful conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, Joe, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed talking with you.
Sound of the buzzer means it is time for another edition of Coach's Corner. This is where we take the questions that you send us and we put them against our impact coaches and try and get you some free advice, some information, some ideas on some things that are plaguing your nonprofit. That is what Coach's Corner is all about. And we've got a great question. We've got a great coach. Our coach today is Cheryl Sukup, the president of Sukup Strategic Solutions. The question reads, as a new nonprofit, we need some help jumpstarting our fundraising. How do we get started? Think about that for a second, Cheryl, but not too long because on Coach's Corner, as you know, you only have five minutes to answer the question and your five minutes starts right now. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. This is, uh, this is a, an essential for any new nonprofit. You have to fundraise, right? That's how you get the, fu- the funding that you are going to use to accomplish your mission and operate your programs. So the all fundraising starts with a well thought out message. So the thing you should start with is your mission and then your vision. What, what do you envision for the future if your organization is fulfilling its mission fully? And you want to then start crafting your message. You want to begin with stating the problem. What is the problem that your nonprofit is trying to resolve? What are you trying to do to change the world in some special way that's unique that caused the need for your nonprofit? You wanna make that problem statement relevant to the donor. So a lot of nonprofits wanna say what they do, but they forget to speak to the donor in terms that are meaningful to them. Why should it matter to the donor? So that's an important part of putting your problem statement forward. And then of course you want to explain your unique solution. How do you propose to uh, resolve that problem? And then if you've been in action for some time, you should have some stories and statistics that you can use to demonstrate your effectiveness in applying that unique solution. Then you want to give the donor or potential donor a call to action. What do you want that prospective donor to do? You want them to give money, you want them to volunteer, you want them to uh, provide you with an in-kind donation of some kind, you want them to serve on your board, whatever it is that you want, you need to define that very clearly, give them a call to action. How do you use this information to uh, begin to fundraise? Well, first of all, you might have some early donors, some people who you've talked to about your vision and your new nonprofit, and they are really interested and have the means to help you. That's great, those early donors could make an investment to help you get started. If you don't have any early donors, who you choose for your board members is really critical. So you want people who you trust who really, really believe in your mission. They're passionate about what you want to accomplish and how you're going to do it. And they're going to help you out in some manner. So sometimes you'll choose board members who have a lot of expertise, but maybe not as much financial wherewithal. So it's important that You set the tone very early at the very beginning of your nonprofit that every board member, despite their capacity to give, needs to participate as a donor and as a fundraiser. You give everyone, if you have a board that doesn't have a whole lot of high net worth connections, maybe you want to start small. This is very common. We get this a lot in our consulting that we have the small nonprofits that have board members that don't have great capacity themselves or great connections to high net worth individuals. So they start very small. You can ask everybody to seek out 10 donors who will give $10 per month. And what that amounts to is $1,200 per board member. So if they can bring in $1,200 each 
and you have a min the, the, the minimum number of board members you can have is three. So that would be $3,600. So you can see how increasing the number of board members that are helping you will increase your fundraising success. In addition to this, you can also set up some small fundraising activities and events that board members can participate in. Some examples might be yard sales or car washes, those kinds of activities. Things that create community awareness while raising funds. That's really important is that these activities help you connect with new people and let them know that your organization exists. And you can bring materials and handouts and have volunteers talk about the organization. Of course, you have to train them ahead of time, but it's important that they're telling people about the organization while they're at the activity, because then you get the double benefit of raising community awareness while raising funds. Other simple ways to raise some money are to make connections with churches and civic groups. There's many community organizations who will be willing to invest in a startup new nonprofit organization if the mission and the vision are in alignment with their own mission and vision. So if you can go out and deliver your message to churches and civic groups, you may just touch the heart of people that will want to help you. And then finally, I would say there are some small capacity building grants that even a smaller nonprofit startup would be eligible for. Typically, you have to have been in operation for a year to be eligible for these, but they're really great for helping you just establish some of the things that you need to in the early days of your nonprofit. So those are a few ideas for ways to get your nonprofit fundraising started when your nonprofit is new and it's in its earliest stages. Good stuff, Cheryl. Thank you. I like the part about community involvement because if you can't get the community involved or at least knowing who you are, you're not going to go very far very fast. So true, Joe. And I think the other thing that's so important is that when you start to involve the community and people start to know about your organization, you can also build a volunteer base. And so connecting with people you know, supporters in any form are really, really helpful, whether they're volunteers or they're sponsors, they're donors, or they are ambassadors for you. And of course, getting high, high impact board members is always, always so important. And if nobody in the community knows your organization, where, how are you going to get the next board member? That's it. Absolutely. Cheryl, thank you so much for being our impact coach today on Coach's Corner. Thank you, Joe. If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and that way you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Joe Turner. Thanks for listening, and thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.